As we anticipate gathering around the Lord's table here in a few minutes, uh, let's uh, turn in our Bibles again to Leviticus chapter 11. We'll be looking at Leviticus 11 through 15. Uh, Let me pray for us just briefly one more time, and then we'll look at this passage here uh, together. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Accomplish your purposes for our good, salvation of the lost, and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, we're in a series through the book of Leviticus. This is part three of a five-week series considering how God has opened a way for people to, to be in his presence, to dwell in his presence, to live in his midst. And we've said over the last few weeks that we, we've seen Leviticus not just as a list of random rules, but as one person said, but as a resolution to a problem. And at the end of uh, Exodus, we have God leading his people out of Egypt, giving them instructions regarding the tabernacle, this mobile temple. And it is built and the glory of God enters it, but Moses doesn't. So we have a dwelling place, but we don't yet have a meeting place. How is this problem going to be solved? Well, it's going to be solved through sacrifice, Leviticus 1 through 7, and through a priesthood, Leviticus 8 And nine, at the end of chapter nine, Moses and Aaron enter into the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord comes to the altar in the outer court and consumes the sacrifice. And the problem is solved. We have everything in place. But then in chapter 10, what happens? Nadab and Abihu seek to enter into likely the holiest of holies with an unauthorized fire. And fire comes out again from before the Lord, and this time destroys not the sacrifice, but the sacrificers, the priests, Nadab and Abihu. Now we have another problem. How can Israel have Yahweh dwelling in their midst and not die? How can they enter into the holiest of places? How is this going to work? Well, the resolution to this problem comes in chapter 16. Chapter 16 of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. This day when the temple, the tabernacle rather, is is sanctified for the sins because of the sins of the people. So it's interesting. Nadab and Abihu are now dead in the narrative, right? They're behind us. Rest in peace, Aaron's sons. But they're mentioned again, right? And when you have someone who's already died mentioned again in the narrative, you think, well, why would that be? The beginning of Exodus 16, would you turn over there with me? The first verses of Exodus 16 mention Nadab and Abihu from chapter 10. And Moses wants us to see this. The instruction regarding the Day of Atonement, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, was given on the same day that Nadab and Abihu were struck dead. The immediate context, the need for the atonement, the cleansing of the temple, not just the worshipers, but of the space was prefaced by Nadab and Abihu's passing. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Implication, that's what Nadab and Abihu had tried to do. Before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. God is going to appear again. 
this time within the Holy of Holies, but only in chapter 16. And what comes between chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu's death, and chapter 16 is this instruction regarding clean and unclean. What is acceptable and unacceptable in the presence of God. How the people of God, not just the house of God, can be cleansed and remain clean. One of the instructions that God gave to Aaron and his sons right after Nadab and Abihu's death was that they as priests were to determine what is clean and unclean. And here we have the laws for what the priest was to do regarding what is clean and unclean in God's sight. I want to give you two illustrations, two images before we look at our text. I think these will help orient us to what we must admit is some strange territory here. Right. Two, two, two images. The first uh, is an NFL game. Right. Uh, I've actually never been to an NFL game. I've been to a couple of college games and uh, a few high school games as well, obviously. Uh, but I've never been to an NFL game. But I've been to stadiums, and I think you can all picture a stadium. And you have people that go to the game that experience it differently, right? So some people might go to the game. They actually do this. Uh, and they stay in the parking lot, and they tailgate. And they never go in because they don't have tickets. They're just there to tailgate, right? They're hanging out near the stadium. And then you have people that have tickets, and they get to go in the stadium, but they don't get to go everywhere in the stadium, right? There's levels that have suites that you, you just don't get to go on that elevator, right? You don't get to go up there, but you can go to your seat and you get to observe the game. And then there's some people that have field access. They can go to the side of the field. So they will go down and they will be on the level with the locker rooms and they will walk out onto the field and they will have access right there. They'll be right there. Different, different levels. We have something of that here in Leviticus. Everything in Israel is either holy or common. If it's common, it's either unclean or clean. So you have holy, clean, and unclean. Kind of a, a spectrum, if you will. And it has to do with proximity, right? So the, priest, the priests are, are holy, Israel is to be clean and the Gentile nations are unclean. So the holy can be in the tabernacle. The clean can be in the camp, but the unclean has to be outside of the camp in the wilderness. So if you are unclean, you have to wait outside. You're like the tailgater. Others are clean. They have tickets. They can be near the field. They can come into the camp. But only those who are made holy can go down on the field, if you will. Only those who are made holy have access. Proximity requires that you know what is clean and unclean and that you be clean. Image number two is a clean room. I asked my wife yesterday because I was thinking about this illustration. I said, Timmy, do you know what a clean room is? Which for a mom of young children, she's processing, what is he asking? I have not seen one. You know, like, uh, and, I, and I said, oh, no, no, no. Uh, I mean like, like the technical term, a clean room. So some companies have these clean rooms. Some of you have maybe worked in clean rooms or been around clean rooms. 
So maybe a film company, something that does something real, where dust cannot be in the room. You've seen these, right? So if you, if you were going to work and your job was to work in the clean room, it would go something like this, right? You would enter the building and you would go to some sort of a prep room and you would put like a, a booty over your shoes. You might put a hairnet on your, on your head and then you would walk through uh, a special mat that would collect any dust that's there because of static. You'd go through another door into like a locker room. And you would put a hood on and a mask on and goggles on and you would have like a jumpsuit that you'd put on and then another set of booties and then you'd have gloves and you would do it all in a special order. And then you could go into the clean room. You had to prepare. You couldn't just walk into work. It had to be sanitary. It had to be had to be dust free. It had to have a special uh, a special preparation in order to enter in to be in the clean room. You have to be clean and to be clean. You have to go through a process. The tabernacle in the midst of the wilderness is kind of like a sacred bubble in the middle of the camp. This clean space and it must stay clean. And though What's holy could be profaned in a moment. And what's clean could be polluted in a moment. It was a process for not only the people, but for the space to be clean, to be holy. Day of Atonement was part of that process. It cleaned the clean room again. And so preserved this sacred bubble in the midst of a sinful People. So with the image of the, the NFL game and the stadium with proximity to the field, with the image of the clean room and the process you had to go through in order to enter it, I think we're better prepared to understand these particular laws regarding what is clean and what is unclean and why it mattered. I want to look at these chapters kind of in an overview manner with you uh, along three headings. Three headings. First, this is our first point. God has rights as creator. God has rights as creator. His choice, his prerogative. He is God. He is the Holy One. He is the creator. He can choose. We've read a good bit of Leviticus 11 here. In Leviticus 11, it's clear that uh, clean means it can be eaten. Right? We read that earlier. And unclean means, well, it can't be eaten. And so in the first eight verses, we saw this. I see it there at the end of verse two. It's animals that are on the land. So these are land dwelling animals. And there's two main conditions, right? You have chewing the cud and cloven footed. So let's just boil this down. Sheep, clean. Goats, clean. Cattle, clean. What about a horse? Not clean. Pig, not clean. And then he moves on. There's no detailed explanation as to why. He talks about animals in the water. Two conditions. Remember them? Fins and scales. See this there in verse 9. Then he moves on to, to birds. No condition is giving. We just have a list of unclean birds. These are unclean. And that list is made up of mostly birds that are predators that might eat dead animals. And then we have a, a whole section on insects. Not what you were thinking about this morning when you woke up. 
And we learn, I think somewhat significantly, that John the Baptist was totally fine to eat locusts. Right? Because they hop off the ground. So how can one be polluted by these various unclean things? Well, in verse 24 and following, which we, we didn't read, we learn that when an unclean animal is dead, well, it's unclean. Period. Right? And if you touch it, you're unclean for an amount of time till the evening. So un- unclean means can't eat it or you become unclean. Can't touch it or you become unclean. But then he, he gives more specific explanation, right? If an unclean thing touches a piece of wood or clothing, that thing must be washed, remain unclean until the evening. So a, a mouse dies in your pitcher of grain, the pitcher would be unclean. It'd have to be broken in that case. If it's in an oven, it's unclean. But there's also mercy here, right? So a rat falls into your spring. Is the whole spring unclean? No, it's actually not. Or if uh, there's a pile of grain and you find a mouse in it, do you have to throw out the whole pile of grain? No, actually you don't. Look down at verse 39. Look down at verse 39. We read this earlier, right? If you find the dead carcass of a clean animal, it's unclean. Shouldn't eat it, shouldn't touch it, or else you would be unclean. If you have to move it, you're unclean, but only till the evening. So if you had a herd and an animal died, you could remove the dead animal from the herd and you wouldn't be knocked out for weeks. You would just be unclean for the rest of the day. If you kill a clean animal for food, well, it's clean. It's clean. So what is going on here? We'll see this under principle number two, but death is the enemy. It's really clear death is the enemy. There should be separation from God's people and and death. We read verses 47, 46 and 47, the end of the chapter earlier. They are to live distinct lives, lives marked by holiness, consecrated lives. They're to be like their their God. Of course, the New Testament picks this up. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we have inherited a special status in Christ, Jews and Gentiles as Christians. And we have been redeemed we've received mercy and so we are to dedicate our lives to holiness the same logic that undergirds these commands is the same logic that undergirds the commands in the new testament but let's let's slow down and ask why why are cattle clean and horses not horses are beautiful pagan nations worshiped cattle I think the main answer is our first point. God has rights as creator. This is his choice. He has prerogative. He can choose some of his creation for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. So the uncleanness of some of God's good creation didn't mean that that good creation was evil. God cares about all his good creation. But the choice of some animals as clean and others as unclean illustrates God's electing prerogative. 
illustrates God's choosing of Israel as a nation from among the other nations. This is what we saw again back in verses 44 and 45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. God chose, God redeemed, he determines what is clean, what is unclean, fear him, obey him, be holy. And when Israel obeyed these dietary laws, they were showing they honored their creator. God had the absolute right to determine how his creatures may or may not be used. Paul uses this, this same language building on the Old Testament when he writes, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So recognizing the distinction between clean and unclean in your daily life as a faithful Israelite is a way of recognizing God's sovereign prerogative as creator to make that distinction in the first place. But there's a a secondary answer. These clean animals seem, and many commentators have spilt a lot of ink trying to figure this out, seem to be those that, that conform to kind of the norms. They're consistent with their type. So let me, let me put it to you, to you this way. Mammals don't have paws. They have hooves. You would say, well, no, that's not... Just kind of normally, right? So fish have fins and scales. An eel. What is an eel? Right? Like we sense this a little bit. We can sense this a little bit. Birds don't eat meat. Insects aren't birds. So flying insects, they're confused. Right? Again, you can think in terms of, okay, what's kind of normal here? They're not acting in accordance with their kind. Swarming things, we don't like swarming things. It's not normal. Why don't we eat this way? Why, why doesn't this inform our diet today? Well, the New Testament gives two main answers. I'm going to have to go through these very quickly here. But the first is quite simply that Jesus has broken down the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles. So these unclean, clean laws were to teach distinction to to illustrate God's choice of some and not others. So in the Old Testament, God is working through the Jews as a nation and he gives specific teaching for them that they would be specific in their place, in their time, distinct. We don't have that now in the church age because church is not limited to a specific people in a specific place or at a specific time. Ephesians 2, we read, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances. God's uniting Jews and Gentiles. One body is the image here. 
The hostility is killed in Christ. The distance is reversed. We who are far off have been brought near. The wall is broken down in Christ. How has he done this? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. If this is true, you would expect Paul to then write to the church full of Jews and Gentile Christians that they should be united. That's exactly what it does in Ephesians 4, two chapters later. You would expect it to be taught that, well, if this is true, if the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been removed, well, then these dietary restrictions that would lead a Jew to show up to a meal and say, I can't have that. This kind of distinction would also be abolished. And that's exactly what we have. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declares all foods clean. And then God makes the point vividly for Peter in Acts chapter 10. Adherence to these laws did express Israel's devotion to the Lord. It separated them from the other nations, even as they separated clean from unclean and what they ate. But these restrictions can be removed because the distinction is no longer relevant in the church age. Food was a really big deal in the New Testament. It comes up again and again. If you remember uh, the passages on conscience, they're about food. Right? It was a visible indicator of Israel's separateness. And when the distinction between Jew and Gentile is done away in the church, so are the visible, the visible indicators of that distinction. So we read Leviticus chapter 11 and we say, praise God for the mercy he's shown us as Gentiles. We who were parking lot tailgaters have been given fieldside access. Praise the Lord. We've been chosen in love, welcomed in and seated at the table. The, the key thing isn't just we can eat pork now. Praise the Lord for bacon. It's that we can gather here. It's that we can gather here. One in Christ. Around the Lord's table. Second point. Second point. God is the God of life and death is the enemy. God is the God of life and death is the enemy. Here I think we get to really the heart of of these laws and we want to consider really most of the rest of these chapters here under this second point because god is the god of life death is the enemy and because death is the enemy death and its consequences are to be avoided so those things are unclean in leviticus 13 and 14 he gives two chapters the longest two chapters in this section they're quite long on skin issues We'll look at those here in just a second. Then we'll go to chapter 15 on bodily discharges and then back to chapter 12 on childbirth. Here we go. Leviticus 13 and 14. Turn there with me. You'll note how long they are. That's the first thing that strikes me as I try to read through these, as I try to look at these. Well over 100 verses here. The translation for the word leprosy is not what we think of as like the technical medical term leprosy, but just a whole host of skin diseases, skin ailments, skin issues. In fact, the word is so broad that in chapter 13, it's used of clothing that can be leprous. Even a house can have it. So maybe includes ideas of mildew and things like this as well. 
If, if you have a skin issue, I don't mean to get all gross here, but if you have a skin issue, you probably have some dead skin. Right? That, that in itself illustrates the point. Right? There, there's a kind of death that comes with these things that is significant. So it is unclean. These chapters provide instruction regarding kind of diagnosing, treating, and then cleansing after it's been cured, serious skin diseases. So individuals, clothing, and then houses. I want to just zoom in on a few verses. Chapter 13, let me read the first three uh, uh, and a half verses here. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is Leviticus 13, beginning in verse 2 now. When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And then he goes into with quite detail. So the priest here is not a doctor. He's not examining to see how serious it is per se he's not looking for the root cause he's wanting to know is this person clean or unclean god's wrath god's judgment is at issue here that's his main concern secondarily it would have had implications for cleanliness in the camp surely so what would this look like well you as an israelite might might notice something and the priest would inspect it and make a judgment Okay, based on those symptoms, here's a judgment. If necessary, the priest would say, you are unclean. Again, it gets very specific. We won't read through this chapter, so I'm balding. But this kind of balding is good. It's fine. I would not be unclean, right? It's very specific. If it was inconclusive, the priest says, I'm not sure. He would re-examine in a week. You could see how that would be wise. So what would the treatment? Well, if it was clothing, it would, it would just be burned if it was unclean. If it was a house, it would actually need to be knocked down. This is significant. But what if it's a person? Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. And let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. This is a description of mourning death, isn't it? There's a kind of loss here. We're meant to live in community. So this isn't a, man, get away from it all. Wouldn't this be nice? No, this is awful. This is outside of the camp, far from God's presence. You're in the parking lot. The tabernacle was for... The holy, holy, it was the holy place where the priests, the holy men served the Lord. Surrounding the tabernacle was God's holy people. And then outside the camp, these were the Gentiles, the sinners, the unclean. So to be sent out there was to be sent to a living death, to be cut off from God's covenant people, from God's blessing. This was to be sent outside of Eden again. Genesis 3, all over again. This would have separated families this would have been significant to say the least and yet as Wenham says in his commentary individual comfort was not allowed to jeopardize the spiritual welfare of the nation wow 
For God's abiding presence with his people depended on uncleanness being excluded from their midst. So you had holy, clean, and unclean. And if unclean came in contact with holy, the unclean had to die. This was for their protection. Again, the priests were more like health inspectors than doctors and If it cleared up, there could be a ritual of cleansing where sacrifices were offered after a ceremony that took place outside of the camp. And so to bring someone from death to life, figuratively speaking, required sacrifice. It's always costly. When we think through this section, as obscure as it is, I hope it gives you some colors So that when you come to the Gospels, you're not just reading, oh, look, he met a leprous person and he healed him. Yawn, Jesus heals people. No, you're seeing Jesus move towards and touch the unclean. And Jesus himself does not then become unclean. No, Jesus' holiness is contagious. He touches the unclean, and the unclean is healed and made clean. And he sends them off to live a totally new life, not only right with God, but now right with his fellow Israelites, back welcomed into the community. Listen to Mark chapter 1. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. The Old Testament, you could become unclean in a moment, but it took time to be clean again, but not with Jesus. Immediately the Holy One of Israel makes the unclean clean. Turn with me over to Leviticus chapter 15. This chapter focuses on discharges associated with reproduction for both men and women. These might better be called, this is how uh, one Old Testament professor described it, as life fluids. It's an awkward phrase, but I like it better than discharges. Life fluids. So this would be either semen or blood. When life fluid leaves the body, here's the principle, it's a kind of death. It isn't sinful, but it can make someone unclean for a time. So examples here are given in Leviticus 15 involving normal interactions within marriage regarding a man's life fluids, women's life fluids. If either had a prolonged issue. So there would be a waiting. There would be a washing for this person to be free from impurity. Only if they failed to do the waiting or the washing, would it be a matter of sin and liable for judgment? Uncleanness established kind of the boundaries for the actions. And so if you stayed in those boundaries, there was no transgression. There was no guilt. God's good gift of sex within marriage is not treated as sinful. It's precious. It's preserved. So the uncleanness that resulted from normal interactions within marriage only lasted the rest of the day. And so this makes sense of why those who were serving the Lord in the military or in worship were to abstain. didn't require, at least not normally, any sacrifices. The uncleanness was ritual, just waiting and washing. God is revealing so that they would know when they were unclean and what they could and couldn't do. 
if they neglected to know these things, if they neglected to act accordingly, they would sin. You would sin. And you may incur God's wrath. Nadab and Abihu made that very clear on a grand scale. Look at the end of chapter 15, verse 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Obedience would lead to life and blessing. God's continued presence in their midst and disobedience was warned against with the greatest of seriousness. Your life would be at risk because the unclean and the holy were to remain separate. With these colors, we read Mark chapter 5. There's a great crowd around Jesus. And there's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no no better, but rather grew worse. Jesus is holy and she is very unclean. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched Jesus' garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned. And said, who touched my garments? Disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you ask who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to this woman, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Friends, Jesus' holiness is contagious. When Jesus associates with you, your shame is taken He gives you his righteousness. In faith, she touched Jesus. She was unclean, but she trusted Jesus' holiness, was contagious, and he made her well. Turn back briefly to Leviticus 12 now. Leviticus chapter 12. We have the categories in place. It's a very short chapter, just eight verses. If you've given birth, you are considered unclean. Reason seems to be tied to the loss of life fluid, the loss of blood. There's a kind of death when life fluids leave the body. This isn't sinful, but symbolic. So this kind of symbolic death made you unclean for a time. So how does one become clean? That's what this chapter is about. You remain unclean for seven days. The child is a boy, 14, if a girl, and then you remain in the time of purifying for another 33 or 66 days after that. Pause. Why is it longer for a girl? We're not told. We know why it isn't. It isn't because God views women as sinful or inferior. Genesis 1 establishes that they are made equally in the image of God. Inherit, inherent dignity and worth. So we know that's not why it is, but why, why might it be? We, we aren't told. 
Given the principles we've already seen regarding these clean and unclean laws in Leviticus 11 through verse 15, it may be some kind of preemptive cleansing for this baby daughter's future loss of life fluids through her monthly cycle. We don't know this. It's just the best guess. We aren't told. So they've waited the seven and then the 33 or the 14 and then 66. They've waited the number of days. Sacrifices were to be offered and then full fellowship was extended. Interestingly, like we see elsewhere, if you couldn't bring the lamb, you could bring a pigeon or a turtle dove was all that was required. There was accommodation made for those who didn't have the means. And again, we've been given the colors to see vividly Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter two, where we read And when the time had come for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Jesus wasn't born into a palace. He wasn't born to an upper middle class family in the suburbs of Jerusalem. He was born into poverty. He embraced the humility of our humanity as well as the humility of being lowly in that society. Born to faithful parents, not to wealth. He identified with the least in his birth. And he will not reject you. God is the God of life. And death is the enemy. And so they were given laws regarding uncleanness to separate them from death and its consequences Third and finally, God requires vigilance in matters of morality. God requires vigilance in matters of morality. Unclean is not the same as sinful, but rather what was permitted by God. These categories, though, required the priests and really everyone to be vigilant in their lives day to day. These laws affected every meal you would prepare. Every meal you would eat. These laws affected every farmer that had animals. These laws affected every time you had a persistent patch of dry skin. They affected every woman, every month, every couple in marriage. Everyone had to be vigilant all of the time because of these clean and unclean laws. So making these distinctions in the ritual area would be a reminder that they were to be making distinctions in the moral area as well. They taught God's people that God requires vigilance. This was analogous morally as well. They were to make distinctions, to be careful, to obey God's law, to be vigilant, to live holy lives. We're not under these laws given to the nation of Israel, but it isn't because God is less holy. It isn't that vigilance is less required. No, in Christ we have access, but if we're honest, that access can lead us to think that maybe God isn't quite as holy. Brothers, the the wonder of the Christian life isn't uh, that, okay, the God of the New Testament is less holy or worshiping Him can be more casual. No, no. The wonder is that God is no less holy, but we have access in Christ. Apart from the sacrificial system. So Leviticus teaches us that we need to be carefully, morally vigilant. Older Christians used to call this watchfulness. Watchfulness. 
Friends, it's not legalism to be careful what you watch or to be careful what you want. It's not legalism to guard your affections so that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. Vigilance in the area of our attitude is not legalism, it's carefulness, right? We don't, we don't want to complain. Vigilance means you keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. That's New Testament language. Vigilance means you're aware of the deceitfulness of your own sin. That's New Testament language. God is a God of distinctions, right? He's drawing distinctions, and He wants us to do that still today. It isn't surprising that God later likens self-righteousness to something that He has identified as unclean. Maybe you heard this verse before from Isaiah 64. All our righteousness are as filthy rags or the ESV all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment every effort that we have to, to bring ourselves near to God on the grounds of our righteousness are like a filthy garment this has everything to do with Leviticus chapter 15 God's holy standard reminds us we are hopeless even our best deeds on our best day do not commend us to God we are outside the camp far off No access. You can't bring your righteousness and be accepted by a holy God. Even your righteousness is stained by sin. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm going to have the men head to the back as we begin to gather around this table friends only the blood of christ applied can bring a sinner near only the blood of christ can wash us and cleanse us and give us access to a holy god so our best deeds on our best day when brought as the grounds of our acceptance as our access are rejected Christ alone gives the access that we need. Christ alone can bring us to God. Friends, God has provided a way. He provided a way for Israel to be declared ritually clean and restored. And God has provided a way for us, sinners who are far off, to be declared morally clean. And to be brought near into His presence. And friends, it isn't our righteousness. If you're here this morning... And you think, man, if I just do more good than bad, if I just clean up my life a little bit more, I got this religious thing. God will accept me, surely. No, it isn't our righteousness. The Bible says those are filthy rags. It's the righteousness of Christ applied to our account. We must be declared righteous, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. In order to be accepted, in order to be given access, in order to be marched from the parking lot down onto the field. Only through Christ. You bring your righteousness, security is going to boot you back to the parking lot, right? You cannot, you cannot, you cannot. You don't have the credentials. Only Christ. Only Christ can bring you near. So, friend, if you are outside of Christ, come to Christ this morning. Come to him in faith. Trust in the finished work of Jesus, that his blood may wash you and cleanse you, that you might have access to God. 
brothers and sisters, as we gather around this table, this is a time for us to remember the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. The wall has been torn down. And so we gather around this table to feast by faith on the finished work of Christ. As the men come forward, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded not only of our uncleanness, but of Christ's righteousness and that proximity to Christ, contact with Christ, being in Christ. His holiness is contagious and he has declared us righteous. And so we can gather with confidence, not in ourselves, not in our righteousness, but in Christ and his finished work on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would give us great joy now as we gather around this table as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Father God, we pray for those here this morning who are outside of Christ. We pray that they would allow these elements to pass, that they would use this time to prepare their hearts. Father, we pray that you would be at work by your Spirit in our midst, convicting them of sin. We do pray for those who are indeed in your family and gathered now. We pray that you would give us great joy as we feast at this table. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior.